thank you to the Boston Bar Association, to you, Noah, and to Ido Chorm, who you may not be able to see because she works efficiently and strategically in the background as our marketing and education person for the Volunteer Lawyers Project. And she is the one that brought us together, created this together with the Boston Bar Association. And so a big, huge thank you to her and a huge thank you for taking the time to join us today. And thanks for that awesome description of um, my bio. While I am here and before we move on, these are the people that have given their time today who are experts in their field and who you will be hearing from today. And I'm going to go through quickly their bios, although their bios are extensive, we do want to get to the meat of our program today. So I'll start uh, oh, a little out of order of the way they set them up here. Chris Sicardi. Apparently not able to be with us. I'm sorry, this list is old. Ken Vining. Over the years, Ken has litigated thousands of housing disputes in district court, superior court, appeals court, Supreme Judicial Court, and the housing court throughout Eastern Massachusetts. He ran his own law firm representing landlords for 20 years and created the current firm of Mass Housing Law Group, LLP. You will get everybody's contact information on the last slide at the end of our presentation. The Mass Housing Law Group focuses exclusively on landlord-tenant law, and we're grateful that he's been able to join us today. Adam Sherwin, a solo attorney practicing in real estate litigation, including landlord-tenant law, boundary disputes, zoning appeals, foreclosure law. He is an instructor at Mass Landlords, a member of the City of Malden Zoning Appeal, and we are especially grateful to have him join us today. Monique Aziza is one of our volunteer long-term temporary staff attorneys who started with us in March of 2021. She's worked on the COVID Eviction Legal Help Project and under the new Eviction Legal Help Program called HELA. She has been able to assist low-income landlords who occupy two and three family homes, in, both in court and virtually. Next, we have Crystal Bernier, who is a member of our partner organization and the legal clinic director at the Hampton County Bar Association. She manages all aspects of the Hampton County Legal Clinic, and this includes overseeing existing pro bono programs, developing new pro bono opportunities, increasing volunteer participation, diversifying program funding, writing grants, grant reports. She is a woman of many talents and we're very lucky that she is a partner of ours. Kevin Walsh. Kevin has been practicing in the real estate business for over 40 years, handling civil litigation matters such as landlord-tenant cases, business disputes, contract claims. He is, a, uh, he is a staff attorney with us. We were very lucky to bring him on last January, has been helping in our low-income landlord program, and is a mentor for the Justice Bridge Program, which is also one of our partners in incubator program at the Massachusetts College of Law. 
Ted Papadopoulos. Ted is a member of AMPS Law, which is a new found partnership consisting of lawyers who represent management companies, property owners in all landlord-tenant related matters. He regularly conducts lectures and seminars for MCLE, National Apartment Association, Institute of Real Estate Managers, and he's the local Massachusetts Council for the National Apartment Association. He serves as chair of the Rebuzz Residential Landlord Tenant Section, and we are really happy that he is one of our volunteers. Attorney Dana Cohen, who is also my brother and who has also joined us with an expertise in real estate matters, estate planning, landlord tenant and business planning. He previously worked for Coopers and Librand as a real estate tax attorney. And currently he is working with us as our solo lawyer that double checks and triple checks all of our landlords ownership in their, in their properties to assure that when they start their eviction actions or their claims, defending against tenant claims, that they have the proper title and are permitted by law to be proceeding. Can we have the next slide? Did I get everybody? I didn't leave anybody out, right? Next slide, thank you. So who are we? The Volunteer Lawyers Project is an organization serving low-income population for over 40 years. The group that you will hear from today are here to talk about low-income landlords. And when I use the term landlord, I know everybody squints over why should we be handling and helping landlords because there is a toxic association in the first instance with the large corporate landlord who does not know their tenant, who does not live in the same home. Our clientele are the mom and pops. Imagine the elder population who are relying on income from their tenants and who are relying on their social security in order to keep two and three family homes up to code, pay their own bills, provide utility services, and then pay their own bills. English is a second language to them. They're not sophisticated in landlord-tenant law, and they actually have suffered tremendous losses during COVID. Navigating the landlord-tenant system is hard for even the most sophisticated people. So our low-income landlords deserve and are entitled to the best of the best who we have here today with us to talk to you. And would you please imagine as you listen to them and they go through the landlord-tenant law and the process that you are one of these low-income, elderly, English as a second language, maybe immigrant, two and three family homeowner who has a tenant you actually share property with. You share the driveway, you share the backyard. You've probably been landlord and tenant for many, many years and here we are with challenges. I wanna thank one more time our Justice Bridge partner, our Hanton County Legal Clinic partner, our virtual platform partner. We are a virtual program and I am going to now politely turn it over to um, our first presenter. Great, that would be me. Hi everyone, attorney Ken Vining. Um, thank you, Donna, for introducing all of us, that was great. 
Uh, thank you everyone for being here. It's an absolutely stunning afternoon. So it's really nice of all of you to be here today. I'm going to talk to you today about the types of eviction. And before I get into it, I just want to say, I mean, I'm going to talk to you for about eight minutes, and that's no way near enough time to talk about all the different uh, intricacies of the types of eviction. So please, you'll get my contact information at the end of this seminar. And I encourage any of you to reach out to me anytime with any questions. I'm always willing to talk through strategy or anything to help you. Um, so without further ado, I believe, uh, I don't know what page, if we could jump ahead to the next page, to the types of evictions on the slide. Not that one, the next one, great. So there are three primary types of evictions to start. Oh, there are others outside of this, uh, 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 drug evictions, preliminary injunctions, things like that. But the, but the most common and uh, for the, the most uh, kind of, what you're gonna deal with on a day-to-day -day basis with, with most landlords are these three types, which are non-payment, no fault and fault. And I have this conversation with landlords almost every day, these three types, because um, it's pretty simple. No fault is the easiest eviction to bring, but it affords the tenants the most protections. Fault is probably the most difficult to bring, but affords the tenants the least protections. And non-payment is exactly what it sounds like. But with those considerations, you wanna analyze from the start very carefully which one you wanna bring. And you're going to have that opportunity because a lot of these small landlords are going to come to you first and try and figure out which one is best for their situation. I can't tell you the number of times where a landlord has called me and said, oh, yeah, send out a no-fault notice. And then when we get to the mediation, he brings up all kinds of, he or she brings up all kinds of fault claims that I wish he had told me about at the start because it may have been a stronger case. And in the same sense, they might bring up fault allegations that later we can't prove. So it's really important that you analyze these three types of evictions right from the start when you speak to your landlord. And it's also critically important that whatever you put in your notice to quit, you mirror that in your summons when you bring the case. What I do to make it ultra safe is I attach my notice to quit exactly to my summons. So there's never any question that the exact reason that I'm bringing in the summons, I've outlined in the notice to quit and they're always gonna match. So let's look at each of these more specifically each one. So if we could jump ahead to the next page, um, which I believe is non-payment or rent first. So non-payment or rent is the most intuitive. It's the most obvious. You have a tenant, they're not paying the rent. But if your goal is possession, which a lot of times it is, a non-payment case is not the case to bring, especially in the environment that we have today. Pre-COVID, when a tenant wasn't paying rent, you would file a non-payment or rent case and more often than not, you would go forward you would work out an agreement or you would get possession. Aside from general cure rights that are almost always available in non-payment cases, you always have the ability to cure under a lease. You have less opportunity to cure under a tenant at will, but there are cure rights. And even without cure rights, I would venture to say, if you bring a non-payment case, by the time you get to trial, if all the rent is paid in full, you're probably gonna have a difficult time getting them out. Even though by black letter law, you probably still would have a non-payment claim. But what's been happening since COVID that makes non-payment cases particularly weak right now for possession is there is a specific statute that was created in lieu of uh, COVID, Chapter 257. And that allows for tenants to apply for third-party funding. And what it says is if they are applying for third-party funding while a non-payment case is pending, then the non-payment case is basically stayed until they either get the funding or they don't. So if your goal is possession, you got to realize and you bring a non-payment case, they're more than likely going to get the funding and be able to keep possession. 
So a lot of the landlords, when it comes to non-payment, before they even consider doing a notice to quit, will simply work with the tenant to try and get funding. And if the tenant sometimes is an unfortunate circumstance where there's a lack of communication and the tenants aren't willing to communicate with you when they're not paying, and you're then resorted to having to bring the non-payment case. But more often than not, the purpose of that non-payment case is simply to get them to then apply for funding and get paid. So again, if the focus is purely possession, you're going to want to think about the other two avenues here under um, types of eviction, which is no fault and fault. So let's take a look at the next slide, which is no fault. So no fault, as I said at the beginning, is the easiest eviction to start from a landlord's perspective. But it's simply, listen, you have a tenancy, either the lease is ending or it's a tenant at will, and you simply give a rental period notice. That's your burden of proof. That's your prima facie case. You own the property, you have a tenancy, you terminated that tenancy. But with that simplicity and with that ease comes many protections available to the tenant on a no-fault case. Even if you do everything perfect and you go to trial and win on a no-fault case, the court has the statutory authority to give tenants up to six months to find a place. And if they're elderly or disabled, up to a year to find alternative housing. That's assuming they've paid their rent. That's assuming they're using reasonable efforts to find other places. But you just need to keep that in mind when you outline for these landlords the time frame of the notice to quit and then filing the summons and the delays with even getting the first trial date. Even if you do all that right, the tenants can still get considerable amount of time under a no-fault situation. Um, there's also something called 8A. You probably heard the term 8A defense, 8A. And, and later, some of my brothers and sisters today are going to speak to you more about specific types of counterclaims. But when you hear the term 8A, that's referencing a specific statute, 239 8A, that allows tenants to bring counterclaims on an eviction. And they're particularly relevant, or they're only allowed, on a non-payment case and a no-fault case. And what it allows the tenant to do is bring a counterclaim and if it's ultimately determined that under those counterclaims, you as the landlord owe the tenant more than the tenant owes you, then the tenant wins possession. So you could bring a no-fault case or a non-payment case, and if the tenant brings claims against you, you could get all the way to the end, and the tenant could win possession. And what does that mean? It means the case is over, your tenant has possession, you would have to start over from the beginning. Uh, when I get calls from certain landlords who've done everything wrong, and they're in a lot of trouble on these cases, I basically tell them this is going to be a two-step process. We're going to bring the first case, and you're going to lose under 8A because they're going to bring all these claims, and then we'll have the second case clean. It very rarely goes that course because when we show up to mediation, we know what the counterclaims are, we know what the situation is, and we end up resolving it probably for something that we may not have wanted to at the beginning, but knowing the risk that if we go to trial, we're going to lose on 8A, it's better to just resolve it and kind of stop the bleeding, as I like to say. So you always want to keep in mind the 8A defenses when it comes to fault and no-fault evictions. The last one, if we can jump ahead on the slide, is a fault case. Now, this case, the tenant has the least amount of protections. They can't bring counterclaims on a fault case. But this case for the landlord is the most difficult because you have to show a material breach of the tenancy and how is material defined? I think the most recent jury instructions that I've had for what is a material breach is something that's either essential or inducing in the lease. So it has to be a breach of that. Sometimes you get 
landlords who might find some mundane provision of a lease and say the tenant's not doing this, that's probably not going to be a material breach. It may rise to that if you give warnings, but you need to outline the fault causes. Sometimes it's obvious. They, you know, there's no dogs. They have a pet. There's no smoking. They're smoking. There's no disturbances of neighbors. There's been loud disturbances every night. So once you outline your fault case, the next step in a fault eviction is you have to be able to prove it. And that's a problem for a lot of landlords. They vary. They have a lot of allegations from neighbors. Neighbors will always complain to you about the things they don't like. But you need a witness. You need the landlord to appear for trial. And then you need to witness with firsthand knowledge of whatever the issues are. If it's smoking, you have to prove this smoking. If there's noise, you have to prove it. And it can't just simply be the landlords always ask me, you know, can I get a written letter from the neighbor? Can I get something? And when I tell them, no, we need them to appear. And I don't blame the neighbors. They don't want to go in there and have a, now a dispute with their neighbor and stand before the neighbor and complain about something. So it's really important when you're considering a fault case that you consider the burden of proof and who you're going to need, who you're going to need to bring. During COVID, when everything was on Zoom, I did more trials in the last two years than I probably did in five years before that, because it was so easy to get witnesses to come to court because we could simply do it on Zoom. But now that everything's back in person, you got to realize that if you're going to bring a cause case, outline the elements that you need to prove and the witnesses you need and make sure they're able to appear. Um, Sometimes you can take a chance. I've, I've filed cause cases where I'm not sure I'm going to be able to have the witnesses, and we hope to just negotiate it at mediation. Um, uh, but that's a gamble you want to take very serious when you're advising your landlords. So let's jump ahead to the last page here on the types because it lists, I think, on each of them the burden of proof, and I just touched on that. But no matter what, for a prima facie case when you're the landlord, you first need to show that you're the owner or the lesser. That's the superior right to possession. And then whichever case you're bringing, you need to prove it. If it's non-payment, you need to have a person there to show whether that's the property manager or the owner to be able to testify that what the rent is and what hasn't been paid. I get so many calls from landlords who say, oh, I'm hiring you. You can take care of it. I'll be in Florida. I'll be away. It doesn't work like that. I need a warm body to appear, someone who has firsthand knowledge of it. On the no fault, again, the easiest in terms of a witness, you're simply testifying that you own the property or you're the landlord and that you've terminated the tenancy. For cause case, we just discussed, we just discussed that. So again, on, every, on each one of these topics, I could speak to you for hours on the intricacies of these. I've just blown through the three different types of eviction. Given our time limitations, and I want you to be able to hear from everyone because there's a lot of really smart people here for you today. Um, that's the part of the presentation for me, but I strongly encourage you, I'm always willing to answer the phone. Late at night, early in the morning, middle of the day, from five to eight, I'm with my kids, so that never works. But any other time of the day, always feel free to reach out to me and I'm happy to talk through strategy. Um, the next, I think, our next presenter on the list is attorney Crystal Bernier. So I'll uh, leave it at that and have her take over. Thank you. Thanks so much, Ken. Uh, so the first kind of step in starting the eviction process is serving the tenant with a notice to quit to terminate the tenancy. Um, we can go on to the next slide here. Uh, so let's talk first about uh, drafting what that notice should look like. Um, so up on the screen here, it's a little bit 
condensed, it looks like. Um, but this is just the template that our office uses. Um, but it's just a letter. It's a letter that should have some key components that we're going to dive into um, in a little bit more detail. Um, but again, we're, we're limited on time. Um, so what I have on the screen is a 30-day notice to quit. Um, some of those the main categories that Ken um, touched or attorney Vining touched on. Um, most of those are going to require a 30 day notice to quit. There are some instances where um, the notice period is less than that, uh, but we're just going to focus on this for now. Um, so the first thing uh, to consider or the key components that should be included in the notice to quit is the vacate date. Uh, and when you're thinking about the vacate date, um, 30 day is a little bit of a misnomer. Um, it is actually a full rental period um, notice that, that landlords are required to give their tenant um, in, in most situations. Uh, so to determine the vacate, you have to think about where you are in the month. So right now we're at October 6th. We've already started October. We could not um, serve a notice to quit today for a vacate date of the end of October. Uh, we would have to do, um, in a tenancy where say, you know, rent is paid on the first of the month, we would be looking at a December 1st vacate date. Um, the timing's important here because uh, that is one of the defenses that the tenant uh, can bring up is that there was not enough time um, that they were giving in the notice. So again, the vacate date is really important. You wanna make sure that you have a full rental period from the time that the tenant receives their notice to the vacate date. Uh, the next component that you want to have in here is the reason for the eviction. Uh, so as you can see in the template in front of you, this is for non-payment of rent. Uh, so in a non-payment of rent, you're going to want to put in um, additional information that is uh, basically a mini ledger of uh, the rent that has been owed to you to date. Uh, what you would put in here for a no fault is that you're ending, ending the tenancy or you're no longer, longer choosing to renew a lease. Um, and then for a fault-based um, notice to quit, this is the, the area where you would put um, in very specific detail, um, you know, lease violations and examples and dates of when those um, violations occurred. And we can go on to the next page here. All right, another thing that you wanna make sure is included uh, in the notice to quit is once you have terminated the tenancy, um, you're no longer gonna be asking the tenant for rent because if you accept rent, uh, then that could reinstate the tenancy. However, the tenant's still going to be responsible for, for paying uh, for their use and occupancy of the unit. Uh, so we have a paragraph included there uh, that just goes over a reservation of the landlord's rights to collect that use and occupancy. Um, some additional things that are included here, uh, if you do have a tenant with uh, a Section 8 voucher or other kind of um, rental assistance, then there are certain things that, that also need to be included here. Um, so uh, you can see in the last paragraph here, um, it's talking about the recertification. Um, the other thing that is also necessary if you have um, a Section 8 uh, tenant or a tenant who receives Section 8, is not only should you serve the tenant themselves, you should also be serving uh, the, the administrator um, of the Section 8 program. Uh, and that's usually included as part of your lease, um, identifies who can be served uh, with that notice. And we can go on to the next slide. 
Okay, so this is um, an attestation form, uh, which the CARES Act uh, had required be served along with a notice to quit for non-payment of rent. Uh, so as you can see here, it's a pretty simple form where you um, fill in the information for the landlord and the tenant, and you also would check off the relevant boxes here. Um, this is a shorter training, so I'm not going to go into too much about uh, the CARES Act, but uh, as long as this form is filled, you, you've complied um, with the CARES Act and sending it to the tenants. And then um, you're also going to want to file it with your summons and complaints and an additional form. So let's move on to the next slide and talk a little bit more about that. So before we talk about the summons and complaint, just to kind of um, highlight the takeaways for serving a notice to quit, you want to ensure that your notice is for a full rental period. Again, taking a look at that vacate date and paying special attention to when you're serving the notice to quit by. You also want to make sure that the vacate date is on a rent day. Um, so typically that's something that you're going to find in your lease is when the rent is due. Uh, that is when that is the date that the um, vacate date should also mirror. If there is no clear vacate date, uh, the law says that the it, the law assumes that it is the last day of the month. The best practice for serving a notice to quit is through the sheriff, um, and again before your rental period starts, um, so that you can make sure that the notice is for that full rental period. You're going to ensure that the reason is included for the eviction that there's a reservation of the landlord's rights to collect use and occupancy. Uh, if it's for a non-payment case, then you're going to make sure that there is a paragraph in there for the right to cure. And if it's for a non-payment case, you're also going to fill out that attestation form under the CARES Act. And if you have a section eight um, tenant, you're also going to serve the housing provider. We'll go on to the next slide here. All right, so when it comes time to um, serve the summons and complaint, and I apologize that I didn't include um, a screenshot of what a summons and complaint looks like, uh, but it's, it's a filing where you, you fill out all the information, contact information for the tenant and for the landlord. Uh, you're also going to put in there the reason for the eviction. Uh, the reason for the eviction on the summons and complaint should mirror the reason that is in your notice to quit. Uh, so, for example, if you have served a notice to quit for not or for no fault, uh, where you just have told the tenant in the notice to quit that um, you're you're ending their tenancy because you're choosing not to renew their lease, then what you would put for the reason for the eviction on the summons and complaint is failure to vacate after notice to quit. Alrighty, and then with the summons in a non-payment case, you're or excuse me. This is in any case, um, is you with the, along with the summons, is you would also attach the plaintiff's affidavit concerning the CDC's um, order. So this is pretty self-explanatory, but you uh, would check off when the affidavit is being filed. And then you would check the appropriate box in the next section. Um, that's the plaintiff's certification. And you can go on to the next slide here. All right, so to summarize uh, how to file, uh, initially file your case, 
is you're going to wait until the notice to quit expires. So you're gonna to have to wait until after that vacate date on your notice to quit. You're then going to go to the court to get a summons and complaint form and ensure that when you're filling out the form that you've matched the reason for the eviction on the summons and complaint with the reason that you included in the notice to quit. Uh, again, this one, so for the notice to quit, it's a best practice to serve it through the sheriff. Um, for the summons, it must be served through the sheriff. Uh, and then you're going to, once you get the proof of service back from the sheriff, you can go ahead back to the court and file your summons along with the affidavit of compliance. All right, and that was just a brief overview. If anyone has any questions, my contact information is uh, included in the last slide. Uh, and I'm gonna pass it along to Monique now. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm going to discuss um, my uh, about the issues and um, with bad tenant behavior. Um, we receive a lot of calls through lawyer for the day um, about how tenants are damaging property. So um, I'm going to discuss how to gain access to the unit and to put a stop to that. Next slide, please. Uh, in 1973, um, there was a, um, a precedent case, uh, Boston Housing Authority versus Hemingway, uh, where um, in the past, um, the landlord-tenant uh, relationship was not regulated. It was just between the parties. Um, but now with this case, it became carefully uh, regulated. It also gave rights. Um, to tenants, which um, protected them from unlawful access. And it also um, guaranteed that they um, should have a habitable dwelling, a livable dwelling to stay in. Um, it also stated that tenants could withhold money until uh, repairs are made, um, such as uh, if you um, don't have heat, um, you can then withhold your rent or use an occupancy until that is fixed. Um, the burden is on the landlord uh, to meet the state heavily standard. No, next slide, please. Uh, landlords are required to keep the place in uh, good condition, uh, which means that they have to follow housing and building and safety codes. They have to make repairs on time. Uh, they have to keep Common areas reasonably safe. Uh, common area could be the you know the front entrance or where you pick up your mail, uh, the driveway. Make sure that um, during the winter that the uh, sidewalks are clear, um, and make sure that um, if uh, if the landlord provides heating or air conditioning, um, to make sure that that is also in good repair and that it's fixed. Um, relatively quickly within um, 48 hours or so, whenever that appears to be an issue for the tenants. Next slide, please. Uh, okay, so uh, again, the landlord is required to make all repairs and to do whatever is reasonably necessary to put and keep the premises in a fit and habitable condition. Um, this includes electrical, gas, plumbing, sanitary heating, ventilation, air conditioning, and other appliances, which are supplied by the landlord. Um, the landlord and tenant may agree um, for the tenant to handle certain repairs, 
but only if it's in a good faith um, transaction and it does not allow the uh, landlord to evade his or her responsibilities. For instance, if the landlord and tenant have agreed in writing uh, that the tenant will make repairs, the landlord is still ultimately held responsible for making sure the premises are in fit and habitable condition. Uh, next slide, please. Okay. Um, generally, for access for repairs without the tenant's consent, uh, that is attainable. That is something you can do. Uh, but generally, you should um, gain cons um, consent prior to entering. But in case of emergency, um, between the hours of nine and uh, nine a.m. and six p.m., um, if you need a plumber or if you um, uh, need the uh, fire department to enter the premises, you generally can enter um, the unit um, generally between um, uh, later in the evening. Um, we tried to provide services requested by the tenant and if a landlord, they need, just need to announce their intent to do so prior to entering. Oh. Next slide, please. Okay, uh, what is a TRO? Um, a TRO is what um, courts use that order the landlord to gain legal access to the premises so they can make repairs or stop bad behavior. Um, for instance, if you're trying, if a landlord is trying to weatherize their home to reduce energy consumption, such as, you know, um, uh, installing solar panels or um, your tenant um, may deny access for home energy audit. Um, which is necessary to install the panels, um, but you can file a TRO to gain access uh, to the unit. Um, also, uh, if your tenants are loud or they're constantly disrupting um, the peace in your home, or um, we would call that um, that you need to restore quiet enjoyment to your home. So you can also file a TRO in that instance as well. Next slide, please. Okay, uh, this is a verified complaint. Uh, so this is the form that you get at uh, one of the uh, housing courts in Massachusetts. Um, there are six housing courts. Um, and this is um, generally a statement of material facts. Um, you would uh, fill this out and um, a court date would be uh, scheduled. So you'd go in front of a judge and let the judge know what the tenant has done and ask the court to order the tenant to permit entry for repairs or quiet enjoyment or um, state your grievance. Um, so to fill out this form, you would generally write, you know, the name of the county, um, whether it's Boston, Suffolk or Hamden County, which is um, Springfield. Um, or you would write your name, your tenant's name, uh, and the name of the court where you're filing it. Uh, and then generally the clerk would tell you the docket number. Um, uh, next slide, please. Uh, this is um, a portion of um, sometimes after uh, you get a TRO, um, the, your tenant is still non-compliant and you have to file a motion um, so to let the court know that you, they are not complying with the judge's order. Um, so uh, the point of that is just to let them know that uh, they did not comply with the previous order that you had before. Um, they were not followed. 
and sometimes that is the case for some of our landlords. Um, our next speaker is attorney Sherwin and he'll be discussing common tenant defenses and counterclaims. Hey, uh, good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here today with all of this very fine panel of um, other landlord attorneys. I'm going to talk a little bit about tenant defenses and counterclaims. I'm going to go to the next slide. So it's generally not a question of if, it's really a question of when, when you start an eviction, if a tenant's choosing to fight it, um, that they're going to bring some sort of defenses and claims against your eviction case. Um, it generally happens really for two reasons. The first is that we have a relaxed pleading standard when it comes to tenants. I don't believe there's any like formal SJC or appeals court decision. It's more just um, tradition of the courts is that they give tenants a lot more leeway. Um, we often refer to it as check the box. You see those forms, tenants can take that. They, all, they simply have to just check out the defense or counterclaims and the courts are generally fine with that. So it's very easy for tenants to file defenses and counterclaims. And the second reason is that Massachusetts, we have very tenant friendly laws. Um, there are many laws on the books that protect tenants, and for better or worse, um, anytime you go into eviction, you have to anticipate that the tenants have the option of raising these claims. I, I don't think it's possible in, the, in the, you know, the hundreds of eviction cases that I've worked on, if not thousands, I don't think I've ever seen a case where a tenant doesn't have some sort of defense or claim. But what your job to do, what your job is before a case, is to try to limit the exposure as much as possible. Um, I think Ken did a very good job about talking about in some cases, you just can't avoid it, which I'm going to kind of expand on, but you can limit it to before you go into eviction, you should certainly prepare your client in advance and discuss with them the pros and cons of each case. Um, next slide, please. <clears throat> so the acronym that I use, the quick checklist, some landlords can't understand renting. These to me are the most common uh, defenses and counterclaims. These will cover you know, 90, 95% of the things that tenants will bring up. And it's very important to go through these with each potential case before you get started. I do this for all my cases. When I get a case, I run through each of these issues so I can anticipate ahead of time what the tenant on the other side, what they might be uh, might be able to do in terms of fighting, fighting the case. Next slide, please. So as kind of a kind of a theme that's from each of the presenters is each of these topics today could easily be their own their own category on its own. We could talk all day about security deposits, but the long and short of it is Mass has an incredibly detailed and highly regulated law on security deposits. No one completely understands it. Few landlords completely comply with it, but you have to be very aware of it if you're defending a landlord in the case. First question I always ask the landlord is, did you take a security deposit? I'd say about 75% of the time, my, my clients do end up taking a security deposit. Next question I ask is, did you follow the security deposit law? And half the time they'll say, yep, I did, absolutely. And the other half, they'll kind of look at me and security deposit law. And at that point, you, your eyebrow has to go up a bit. We have to be very careful about is if you start an eviction case and a tenant raises a defense about a security deposit, you're put on notice that if your client hasn't followed the law, you are going to have to return that deposit. The general rule of thumb is that if a landlord doesn't comply with the security deposit law during the tenancy and the tenant makes a claim to it, the landlord has to get out a free card. They can return that security deposit. And if they do, that particular claim is gone, which is good for landlords. So you want to be very aware of it. And this is especially important, very, very important if you're representing a low income landlord. I've seen in cases where the landlord took a security deposit and they spent it. They don't have it escrowed. They didn't follow the law. 
if they start that eviction case and the tenant raises the security deposit claim and they don't have that deposit to raise, they're going to lose the eviction and they could possibly be on the hook for treble damages and attorney fees. So very, very important. I would never start an eviction case unless I'm absolutely certain that my client, they have that security deposit, they can return it if they didn't comply with any portion of the law. Next slide, please. So last month's rent is a little bit easier than security deposits. The general claim is usually claims about landlords not paying interest on a security deposit. You don't see these come up very often. And you, these usually claims usually aren't make or break issues. They get raised, but I, I very rarely have seen a land a tenant take a, a last month's rent all the way to trial or judgment. The rule of thumb is if the landlord has deposited the secure the last month's rent, if it's in a separate account or their own account, if they've earned any interest on it they are supposed to pay interest to the tenant. There is a series of cases that say if the landlord didn't deposit it, they spent the money on their own, which they are entitled to do. The case law, some case law does suggest that they don't owe any interest to the tenant. You have to kind of decide which, which side that you're willing to, to kind of fall on, which approach you want to take, but be aware that last month's rent can possibly come up and you just want to consider that before any, any, any eviction case. Next slide, please. Utilities is a very big issue for, um, uh, for landlords. Big utility issues, very common one is a claim about a lack of a written agreement for payment of utilities. That's a, 90, that's a sanitary code violation. It could also fall under being a 186.14 violation in many cases. If, you, if the tenant and landlord do not have a written agreement for the payment of utilities. Cross metering is a very big issue. Cross metering occurs where a landlord is renting out multiple units but they have one set of utilities for the entire building. So for example, a residential home with two units, but there's one set of utilities for both and the tenants are just expected to kind of split them between themselves. That's a big no-no. That would turn into a very big, uh, a very serious counterclaim from, from the tenant. If you're in that circumstance, the best thing to do is speak to your landlord in advance and, and address it with them. You have to understand there's no real way to fix this after the fact. And, if it does come up, it is going to serve as a defense in many evictions. Um, as Ken said very well, in some cases, multiple evictions uh, are required. So you may have to just prepare your client that you may be in a situation where, unfortunately, you may have to bring, bring the case again. But I would always re reaffirm very, um, what I always say in one of those cases, as I tell a tenant, is that you, know, you can certainly fight this, but we may be back in the same position in a couple of months with another eviction on your name and um, really not you know, making any sort of progress either way. So it usually makes much more sense to deal with these matters in one eviction versus fighting it out in another one. Next slide, please. So conditions, as um, Monique talked about, conditions are a big issue. The state, uh, we have a, a, a applied warranty of habitability. We also have quiet enjoyment claims as well. Every town and city across Massachusetts has some sort of board of health or inspectional services that can look at rental property they can cite a landlord if the property isn't up to code. My rule of thumb is if I have a landlord that comes to me and they've been issued a citation of any sort, if they're saying that they're not in compliance with the sanitary code, give that taken care of right away. My rule of thumb, don't start an eviction with very few exceptions. Don't start that if there is any sort of pressing issue. You wanna get that taken care of in advance. If there are very serious conditions, very bad conditions or very bad problems in the unit, you again want to speak to your landlord about that in advance because the tenant certainly going to raise them as a defense or counterclaim. You have to weigh the pros and cons about, about proceeding with the eviction. 
Next slide, please. And the last is retaliation. Retaliation claim will almost always come up in some sort of eviction. Mass is a very um, tenant-friendly retaliation law. Generally says is if the um, tenant has made a complaint about the apartment, about the conditions, or they've joined a tenant union of some sort, and the landlord then goes ahead and does something adverse against them. If they start an eviction or if they try to change some part of the tenancy, there is a presumption that retaliation will, will come up. The tenant's always going to claim that there is retaliation. Your client is always going to deny it. Your job is to kind of figure out who has the better case and figure out who, if, at the end of the day, can you prove it? Can you show that this eviction case has a reason other than trying to stick it for the tenant? Uh, stick it to the tenant for making some sort of complaint about the property. So, for example, if it's a if it's a um, no fault eviction, and there is a case, if, if retaliation would apply. Let's say the tenant complained about you know some sort of like a problem with the sink or something in the kitchen of the unit, and the next month the tenant wants to do a no fault eviction. I would ask the tenant, and I would try to get some information about really why do they want to evict the tenant. So, for example, if they're saying that I have family members that want to move into the unit. I would probably get on the phone and speak to those family members and confirm that and make sure that you can put that evidence in there. Because if you can't, if you're not going to be able to make a good explanation of that, the tenant's going to have a potentially strong retaliation claim and, and against your eviction. Next slide, please. <clears throat> so I'm going to go through the most common defenses and counterclaims. First is the implied warranty of habitability. Monique talked about this a little bit a little bit um, before. This is a common law, a common law came an SJC decision. All rental property comes with this warranty. There's no way to get around that. There's no way to exclude it or waive it. It's, it's one of those warranties that comes with all sorts of property. It generally comes based on contract versus tort. So the idea behind that is generally um, you don't have to prove that the landlord is at fault. Meaning if it's rental property and you know there's a very serious rodent infestation, the landlord most often would be found liable for the implied warranty of habitability, even if they didn't purposely cause it or they didn't purposely ignore the problem. So it's really contract-based as opposed to tort-based. Uh, General Law 186.14 is a statute, and that kind of includes two broad categories. First is utilities, as we talked about, cross-metering or the lack of a written agreement. Um, that'll fall under that. And then there's the broad covenant of quiet enjoyment. Quiet enjoyment just means that a tenant's entitled to quiet enjoyment over their property and landlord's not permitted to disturb that. So that can be condition-based. That can be if the, the conditions or the landlord doesn't take care of the property and it's so severe that it rises to this. But it could also be non-conditions as well. I was researching, researching this the other day. It was a recent appeals court decision. The landlord started an eviction and blew up a, an eviction notice, a huge eviction notice, and posted it on the tenant's door so that everyone in the neighborhood could see it. And the court said that is, that's quiet enjoyment. You're disturbing the, the tenant's right of peaceful possession of their, of their apartment. So it's, it can be more than just simply conditions. That falls under more of a tort claim. You generally have to so, show some sort of fault or negligence on the on part of the landlord. Talk about the security deposit law, but again, it's a very broad law and it certainly comes up quite a bit in eviction cases. And then there's 93A. 93A is really a catch-all. In many cases, it's going to cover everything we talked about before all of these other matters can fall under 93A, but it's broad enough that it covers all undeceptive and um, uh, undeceptive business practices. Important thing to keep in mind is that for landlords, um, if, you're, if your property is owner-occupied, if you're in the property itself, 
generally you're not going to be considered as in the business of being a landlord. So 93 would not apply. 93 generally applies for separate rental properties. So if you own a rental building that you don't live in, generally you would, in that particular case, you would be considered in the business of being a landlord. Next slide. And that's it. I'll turn it over to Ted, to Ted for the next part. Man, I was hoping that, uh, I was hoping that Adam was going to just keep going into next slide, but I guess uh, I'm going to do my part right now. So um, nice to see everybody. And um, I, I'm charged with going over why would I want to mediate with my tenant? And there are a number of reasons. I know that the majority of us has beca have become attorneys thinking that we want to litigate cases. We want to be in front of a courtroom and make arguments. But at the end of the day, um, I remember when I sat Faneuil Hall and swore the oath uh, to become an attorney that my job was to come to fair and equitable resolutions and to zealously advocate for your clients. So you can achieve that. And in fact, my experience has been you can achieve that much better uh, through mediation, through resolutions, by agreements, creative solutions you can come up with, as opposed to just litigating, getting in front of a courtroom and showing everybody what you can do. So um, without further ado, I guess we'll go to the next slide. And we'll jump into, uh, so yeah, so uh, we'll jump into mediation. One of the best things that has come from uh, COVID-19 and the changes in our court system is, in my opinion, is uh, Standing Order 6-20 in the housing courts. And I believe the equivalent was 1-10 uh, in the district courts. But the idea is because there has been, they called it an avalanche of evictions, I like to think of it as a bottleneck uh, where the courts were actually slowed down. We had all lanes potentially open, but they closed a bunch of lanes and then they uh, handcuffed a lot of our ability to re resolve cases and really utilize the housing specialist department in the housing courts to resolve cases and potentially get agreements on non-payment or cause-related cases. That being said, uh, you know, with a global pandemic, uh, changes are made and we just need to learn to, you know, uh, go with the flow. But um, previously we used to be able to file complaints and you would know your trial date. Uh, we had the service date, the entry date, the answer date, and the trial date, and you knew what your trial date was going to be. So on your complaint, that would be provided to the tenant when you served them. And uh, that was the date you showed up for trial, uh, ready to go. And potentially uh, your clients might have opportunities or explain to you that they've had communications with the tenants uh, and maybe they're extremely adverse. Maybe there's room for agreements. Uh, but now with this new two-tier system, your first event that you're going to get notified about is this mediation. It's this opportunity to sit down. They try and schedule it depending on the courts um, within a couple of weeks of you actually filing it. The problem is, is as you can imagine, in certain housing uh, divisions, and I didn't know this, but the Northeast Housing Court, I, I thought it was the Eastern Housing Court. The Eastern is what it's now called. It, as many of you may know, it used to be the Boston Housing Court. Um, I thought it was the Eastern Housing Court that's the busiest just because it has our state uh, capital, Boston, in there with a lot of uh, cases that they hear. But the busiest court is actually the Northeast Housing Court. And it shows, uh, unfortunately, they they are backed up in terms of scheduling. It can be a lot longer than maybe some of the other divisions. But if anything, it's an opportunity, again, to try and mediate your cases, talk to the tenants and figure out if there's a resolution that you might be able to come to. So tier one uh, is that opportunity. 
doesn't mean you can't have a conversation with your uh, tenant, reach out to them uh, and see if there's some room to come to resolutions. Um, and that can happen also at tier two stages. So whether the tenant shows up or not at the first tier, uh, technically you're entitled to a default now after July of 2021, um, you're now entitled to a default if the tenant does not show up um, on the tier one event. If they do show up and you're still not able to resolve it, you can still discuss after the fact uh, or come to an agreement before the trial date. Oftentimes you can even come to an agreement after the trial date if a decision hasn't been rendered. So um, at the end of the day, yeah, uh, the worst case scenario at the tier one event is that you're not able to resolve the case. The best case scenario is that you are able to resolve the case. And that comes at a huge uh, cost savings for your client. And at the end of the day, like I said, this is a business decision for them. You try and separate all of the personal issues uh, and advocate for your client. Let them know that, yes, I understand there may be these personal issues. It is an intimate relationship, a landlord-tenant relationship. But my goal is to try and get you a result that resolves the, the underlying issue. If it's a non-payment of rent case, let's resolve the non-payment issue if possible. There's a lot of rental assistance available now. Uh, a lot, there was a lot more up until April uh, with the federal assistance, but there's still some state funding, a substantial amount available. So if you can resolve those issues, fantastic. If they can't be resolved, obviously we go to trial. But mediation is a great opportunity to identify the issues, come up with creative solutions. And if you're not able to come up with creative solutions, a trial. Uh, but I almost consider it a, uh, it's an opportunity really to see how creative you can get to resolve some of the cases. Um, now, that being said, and with this slide, you'll see that it's an opportunity to learn about defenses and claims. Not all tenants file answers. So you might get to the first tier event and you're hearing for the first time because an answer was not filed that, well, the reason I haven't paid my rent is because X, Y, Z, right? Uh, some of the things maybe that Adam spoke about or that Ken spoke about as well. Conditions. There were all kinds of problems. There were mice infestations, you name it. So you may hear about it for the first, first time when you get there. So it's a great opportunity to understand what the defenses or claims will be if and when you get to trial. Um, now, counterclaims, oftentimes the court, uh, they would have to file a motion for a late answer if they haven't identified any counterclaims prior to the first year event. Right now, answers need to be filed three business days before the first year event. Um, so if an answer hasn't been filed and they come in with a bunch of counterclaims, technically those are not going to be heard at the trial uh, unless they file a motion for a late answer that's allowed and then they can present those counterclaims. Counterclaims are permissive, they're not compulsory. Uh, so anyways, um, sometimes you're at an impasse so it's going to proceed. Um, it is voluntary so at any point either party can step away. The housing specialists and the housing specialist department is one of the best features of the housing court. Uh, specialized court, obviously, that has trained mediators. They're extensions of the judge. They can get information. They know sometimes how the judges in their courts might handle certain issues or certain facts. So it's a great opportunity to get a taste of what a trial might look like. So even though your client has some expectations, or which sometimes can be unreasonable, mediators sometimes are very good uh, uh, foreshadowing or can provide you with that insight of what a particular judge might be concerned about, uh, given some of the facts, uh, the bad facts that you have in your case. 
they do have different techniques. And uh, unfortunately, there's, in my opinion, great techniques, and then there's not so great techniques. Uh, I've had mediators, unfortunately, that, you know, uh, we're looking for $8,000. That's outstanding. Counterclaims have been filed in the amount of $4,000. Uh, so all they're doing for you at times is the math. They say, well, eight for you, four for you. Let's split the baby and put it at, you know, two. So that's not very helpful. But again, to the extent that you're able to identify some of the issues, really see what the likelihood of success are on some of the claims, that's a really great opportunity. Uh, so the, the why do I mediate with my tenant? Why do I sit at a tier one and say that I'm always willing to do it? Because at best, I solve my case. At worst, I've learned everything on the other side that I need to be prepared for come trial. So the next thing that we're going to talk about is really just an agreement versus uh, an agreement for judgment. So we now, we've always had this concept of potentially doing stipulations, agreements that don't involve judgment versus agreements for judgment. And we'll get into the details a little bit about that right now, or whether you go to tier two trial, that's really the only options that come from a tier one mediation, right? Um, either you're going to get an agreement or you're going to trial or it's a default because they didn't show up. So next slide, please. So some of the common terms that we uh, that I've put together uh, for you to consider. And one of the things I really want to uh, stress is these are not copyright uh, terms, right? So I, I personally can tell you that doing this for the last 15 years, there have been several times where as long, we're all to an extent on the same side, right? Uh, I've spoken to landlords, attorneys, Ken at times, uh, you know, uh, other attorneys like, you know, attorney Krems, you name it. And the benefit in having these conversations and even sharing some information on these agreements is you might see a term that really is a good term that is that can assist your client. And one example that I can tell you about that I personally have adopted and I don't remember from whom, but uh, is on a voluntary vacate agreement. Uh, the standard language that I was trained with when I first uh, became an attorney was, and I can almost recite it verbatim because I've been doing it for so long, is the defendant agrees to voluntarily vacate, leaving the premises in broom clean condition and free of all occupants with leaving the keys on the kitchen counter by no later than blank. And that's all I used to have. But I, I found that some additional language that's really helpful is to say that any items remaining in the apartment after the agreed upon vacate date may be deemed abandoned and can be discarded by the landlord uh, without liability. That's a fantastic addition to put in there. And like I said, there's no copyright on these. And at the end of the day, we're all trying to help one another. So if you see somebody in court and you have this conversation, these terms are obviously not all inclusive. These are just some of the common terms that I've put in there that you'll see in agreements. Feel free to adopt them and feel free to modify them. And if you can come up with something that's additional that helps everybody out, share it. So um, just to go real quickly through some of these, Defendants shall pay their monthly use and occupancy by the first day of each month. Some of these things people can be sticklers about. I like to always make sure it's a use and occupancy if it's an agreement for judgment. Technically, you've terminated a tenancy, so it's not rent. So it is use and occupancy. So I don't like to say they're going to pay their monthly rent. I like to say they're going to pay their monthly use and occupancy uh, by the first day of each month. That may need to be modified. When you sit and mediate, it might be that the individual is telling you that they received their social security on the third of the month and that they need a couple of days for it to deposit and then give you a check. So maybe that's going to be by the fifth day of each month. Um, so all of these are obviously, um, uh, they, they can be subject to change. Uh, 
Uh, any other charges or utilities as when due per the lease need to be paid as well. And then the core costs need to be paid. <coughs> as many of you know, under 186 section 11, to cure a non-payment case, you need to pay all rent then due plus interest and costs on or before the answer date, right? So technically under the statute, you do need to pay for core costs and a non-payment of rent to legally cure. So we always like to include the core costs, but is it negotiable? Absolutely. That might be something that any landlord that you might work with is willing to waive. Uh, but for the most part, we like to include it. Uh, we're, we're a little hard-lined in our office, so we get the core costs since we legally are entitled to them. Uh, defendants need to pay the current judge uh, balance or the judgment according to the following payment schedule. The reason I say balance or judgment there is depending on whether you're going to do it as an agreement stipulation without judgment entering versus an agreement for judgment. And now I see actually, as I'm saying this, that it might've been good and we're gonna get you in a couple slides. So just be patient. Um, the distinctions between an agreement or stipulation and agreement for judgment. But uh, this is, I guess, some foreshadowing that you can see current balance as opposed to judgment. It depends on how you're doing it. Um, another common uh, provision now, uh, and um, the third bullet is payments need to be in certified funds. That may or may not be something that your client requires. It may be that bank check, personal check, cash is still fine. I always recommend providing a receipt to the extent that it's cash uh, that protects both parties. In terms of what was received, a lot of clients now are only accepting online portal payments. So obviously that's something that can be adjusted depending on what your particular client's uh, needs are. The fourth provision is very common as well as the fifth provision nowadays with rental assistance. They, they were always common because RAFT was something that predated COVID, um, but nowadays it's something statutorily uh, after 257 of the Acts of 2020 and now it's been codified in 2023 to be something required in the future. Rental assistance is something that uh, you need to accommodate for in a non-payment of rent case. And uh, you need to make sure that you're being clear about in terms of what the uh, expectations are from both parties. So if there is a pending application for rental assistance, you should ask for some kind of proof, an MEN number or whatever it is, and that that should be provided by a certain date uh, to diligently complete the process. Language that assists the tenant as well. Plaintiff will cooperate with the reasonable request for information. Um, and then acceptance of rental assistance shall not waive the terms of this agreement. That's important because you'll notice that on the second page of a lot of these owner agreement terms that are being sent out by DHCD or whatever entity is processing the rental assistance application, they have standard language, some of which says that once you accept it, you agree to dismiss any pending case. So different judges have ruled on that differently. You wanna make sure that you're clear that by accepting the rental assistance, this agreement still remains in place you're still obligated to make future uh, rental payments. Or if there is a deficiency, uh, since the maximum now is $10,000 and they owe more than 10,000, you don't wanna obviously have to dismiss your case. Um, the fifth uh, bullet point is something that we created just in the event that they don't qualify. That for whatever reason, if it is denied, you wanna make clear that upon denial, this is a balance that is due and should be paid within a certain period of time. Again, certain judges may accept that, Certain judges may not, but we've typically put in that within 30 days of the denial, the payment needs to be made. Uh, and that has uh, passed the muster of several of the judges in the housing courts. Um, the second to last bullet point is a legal fees provision. 
Again, just some standard language that I've provided in here that you may want to utilize in the event that your lease allows for legal fees. As many of you hopefully know, legal fees for a landlord at least are only by contract. There is no statute that permits attorney's fees as many statutes do for tenant uh, and landlord related violations, right? So under 93A, under 18615B, you have uh, the right to attorney's fees for tenants and obligation to pay to be paid by the landlord in the event that there is a violation. For a landlord, it's only in the event that you have a contract that allows for them. And then the last provision is the agreement is not waived by a recertification uh, or execution of a renewal lease. There are many judges that interpret that if you sign a new lease or if you recertify and they uh, sign a new lease as a result of being in the affordable program or otherwise, that reinstates the tenancy. So you just want to put some language in there to preserve your case. Uh, next slide. Oh, I'm looking at my screen. Didn't realize the next slide came up. So common terms, again, these are some fault-related cases uh, or fault-related provisions. Um, and again, you can read through them. Feel free to modify them as you see fit. Um, some of the ones that you may see that are not in here um, are reasonable accommodation-related uh, provisions. So sometimes you'll have something where a tenant might request a reasonable accommodation. And it's not a bad idea to include in your agreement that to the extent that a reasonable accommodation request has been requested, the provisions contained in this agreement address that accommodation and resolve that accommodation. And then to the extent that any future accommodation is necessary, that can certainly be requested, but it shall not waive or reduce the material terms of this agreement. In other words, um, just by way of example, if there's uh, an agreement that you're gonna uh, not proceed with an eviction because somebody was causing a lot of noise disturbances um, and you come up with some kind of creative solution that um, you know there's gonna be padding installed or whatever it is, that resolves this request for accommodation. Anything in the future can be preserved, but if, if there is a violation of the material terms of this agreement, they, they can still be interpreted as a violation. So it's not, it's not gonna just be a continuous issue. Um, so we have some additional language that feel free to reach out to me in the future if uh, you'd like to see some of that. Smoking is another common one. Animals, unauthorized occupants. Uh, these are going back to why we do agreements and why we mediate. If, if you resolve your case by agreement at a cost saving for your client rather than litigating the case, if there is a violation of that agreement that you're able to establish, you're able to do it via a motion. You don't need to prove that there was a material violation of the lease and that you're entitled to terminate. It's almost accepted that you were able to terminate it. Now it's, was there a material violation of the agreement? And that is important. That's, you've already to an extent won your case on getting it in. And this agreement, which is court ordered, um, is what we're gonna go and abide by in the future. So as long as you're able to show a material violation of that agreement, and the judge agrees with your uh, motion and that at the end of the day, they're looking at maybe the good of the many as opposed to the good of the one, if it's a fault-based issue or disturbances, then you're gonna be entitled to the uh, issuance of the execution for possession. Um, so next slide and final slide, won't bore you anymore, um, is really the distinction between this agreement for judgment versus stipulation. There's no practical difference. It's gonna achieve what it is that you're trying to achieve. And in my experience and in uh, the, the, the way that we've advised our clients is these 
opportunities to enter into a stipulation or an agreement rather than an agreement for judgment are at a benefit to the tenant. And courts like to see them, I think they prefer them, where judgment enters in the event that there's a violation. It's one of the important terms though to add in that if, if you are gonna do an agreement as opposed to an agreement for judgment, uh, and again, it is going to depend on the court, unfortunately. Some courts are not thrilled with this language, but we always recommend putting it in there, is a judgment that judgment will enter nunc protunc, which is just fun to say, but aside from being fun to say, is uh, Latin for now for then. And what it means is judgment will enter as of then, when we first did the agreement, in exchange for doing this agreement. So by doing the agreement, if there's a violation in the future, judgment enters as of the date you did the agreement. The benefit being likely the appeal period has lapsed. So, um, and, that, and that's one of the things that again is you get something for giving something. I give you an agreement, judgment does not enter unless there's a violation. But if there is a violation and a court determines that it's a material violation of the agreement, I get judgment and it's from back at the original date. Um, tenants can still typically appeal those and whether the judge abused their discretion, but it's a pretty high standard in terms of uh, that type of appeal. And all of it is really governed by BHA versus Casio, uh, which is that if there is a material violation and the court makes that determination, plaintiff is entitled or landlord is entitled to their uh, execution for possession. And uh, it's really just on a, you know, abuse of discretion by the judge to the extent that they're going to uh, overturn that. Um, so in terms of why do I mediate with my client as a final point, uh, because we owe it to our client, I think, and we potentially can resolve it as a, at a huge cost savings, best case scenario, tenants comply with the terms of the agreement and you're done. You're done with your case and you've restored a landlord relationship. We always say that we're in the business, our clients of providing housing, not evicting. So to the extent that you can preserve housing and do an agreement, we highly recommend doing that. So. Uh, I, I'll say next slide, and then I will, uh, I guess, hand it off to Kevin. I've just been notified by Kevin that he is having some Wi-Fi challenges, and I'm I'd like to give a minute to see if he can if he can uh, straighten out his Wi-Fi, and if not, um, would someone like to pick up the um, five or six minutes of what to happen post judgment and some practical advice? I know every single one of you on this panel would be able to handle that without much preparation. So, is there anyone who's Ted? You're coughing, and you just finished speaking, so. We'll give you a break. Anybody else want to be able to step in on that? You'd have to unmute yourself or raise your hand. I, I can do it if no one else wants to. Thanks, Adam. And his first slide is up. Okay. Do we want to give him another minute or do you want me to just go ahead? Why don't we move along because there are people waiting to hear this important information and if he is able to step in he'll come back on. Okay. So um yeah, so once you, yeah. So once you get the judgment whether you've done an agreement for judgment or the court's issued a you made it went to trial and uh, the court's done a judgment there's a 10-day period that goes after that 
um, at either either side can obviously the, the loser can uh, can um, can appeal the landlord or the tenant. The ten day period is fixed in stone, so if you do miss it, there is case law that says there's no there's no means of getting that um getting that raised after. There's also the um, option of a stay of execution, which was discussed before. The court has inherent authority for a no fault eviction to do six months and then twelve months in some cases. A lot of courts also think that they have an inherent authority to give a stay of execution. So regardless of- uh, Adam, yep. excuse me, Kevin Walsh back. I uh, apologize. It, Our no, town is there. having internet connection problems. <laughs> Thank you for jumping in. All right, but you're back in the game. Good afternoon, everybody. So thank you to Adam and everybody else. Uh, so yes, you get a judgment. Then what? You have to wait 10 days. That is the statutory appeal period. And your judgment takes effect on the first day after your judgment, uh, either your default or your trial. So effectively, the earliest you will get an execution is on the 11th day thereafter, and probably not that early. But execution uh, will issue pursuant to Uniform Summary Process Rule 13 in conjunction with Mass General Law 239, Section 5. So once you get an execution, the tenant may try to stay the execution or delay its use. When might that happen? Well, first of all, as Ken Vining mentioned earlier, uh, the new COVID rules in the last couple of years, uh, the courts will grant a stay of execution if there is an emergency rent protection process still pending. Uh, secondly, um, if you file an appeal as a tenant within the 10-day period, that will cause a stay of the issuance of the execution. Third, and this is only in a non-payment case, if after judgment, you as the landlord accept all of the rent due and the court costs, by statute, that ends the case and if an execution has somehow issued, it would have to be returned. Uh, that is pursuant to chapter 239, section three. And then also pursuant to 239, section nine, if a tenancy has been terminated without fault of the tenant, then even if the landlord wins and gets an execution, the judge can delay the use of the execution for up to six months if it's a tenancy at will termination with no fault. And if someone is handicapped or disabled, the judge um, or over age 60, the judge can give up to a year delay. So it's very possible to win the case and feel like you've lost. Another situation where a stay can happen is when you win, you get the execution, you have it served, and we'll talk about that process in a moment, but it's fairly common that when you have your constable serve the execution, telling people they must leave in 48 or 72 hours, the tenant suddenly gets nervous. 
and they run to court on an 11th hour uh, appeal of mercy to the court. Judge, I need more time. And it is fairly common for courts to extend the period for eviction. The court will sometimes cancel the 48-hour notice that you've served, give the tenant maybe an extra few days, a week, whatever the tenant uh, assures the judge will be enough. And uh, you may have to deal with a short-term stay of execution in that situation. If that happens, what you want to try to do is either um, have the court order the tenant to pay the costs of any new service of a 48-hour notice, or even better, if you can, ask the judge to waive service of another 48-hour notice and have everybody just operate on whatever the court said in court that day. Now, sometimes you're going to have to uh, make a motion for an execution. And I would back up and say that after the uh, judgment, uh, one of the documents you're going to be asked to file is a Rule 10 affidavit. That's uh, putting in the amount of rent that's owed and whether the person is in the military. But after the 10 days are up, if you want the execution after a judgment, uh, you're going to have to ask the court for it. Doesn't have to be a motion, but you're going to have to file a letter or some kind of a notice saying, please now issue the execution. Uh, however, sometimes you'll have an agreement for judgment. And your agreements should always have in them a clause that says, if there is a violation of this agreement, the plaintiff may file a motion to have execution issue early. And that gives you the opportunity to get back into court to deal with whatever the problem is, and sometimes to have the execution issue before it would have ordinarily under the agreement. Now, once you get an execution and you want to use it, you have to have it served by a sheriff or constable. And you should see uh, chapter 239, section three, which has a very detailed description of everything that the 48-hour notice must contain and everything that the constable or sheriff must do. Certain things to be watchful for uh, particularly if your constable is maybe not very experienced. If you are taking things out of an apartment uh, pursuant to the execution and storing them someplace, you have to use uh, a special storage facility. It cannot be anything you find. It has to be one that meets the conditions set forth in Chapter 239, Section 3. Uh, prior to the eviction, the sheriff or constable has to serve this 48-hour notice. It's a, a notice piece of paper that goes to the tenant and says, you are going to be moved out on a certain date at a certain time. And that has to be at least 48 hours from the notice being served. Um Again, 239, Section 3 spells out how the sheriff or constable must do that. But 
that move out date cannot be a Saturday, Sunday, or holiday, and also must be done between the hours of 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. Now, the constable must also take very uh, strong precautions about how things are moved out. You want to make sure that your constable is bonded. Um, they have to use a licensed public warehouse. And you want to make sure that everything is boxed safely, properly, and taken away. One problem that often happens when the sheriff or constable moves items out is that there might be a bag of what the constable will call trash, and they don't want to move it for some reason. It looks dirty, it's smelly, whatever. As a landlord or landlord's counsel, I always stress and try to get the constable to take every last scrap, everything, because then it's all been removed properly, it's not the landlord's concern anymore, and they don't have to worry about it. But sometimes a sheriff or constable will say, I'm not moving that. It's junk, it's trash, it smells. I'm not going to touch it. That puts you in a bind. There is always the risk that that bag of trash is really padding for some expensive antique vase. And if you throw the trash away, you've thrown the vase away. So you don't want to treat anything cavalierly. And if your constable refuses to take it, then at the very least, you want to put it aside in a safe place. Don't just throw anything out if you don't know for sure what it is. Um, the uh, 239 uh, section three also has very particular um, information about how the tenant can regain their property and what they must do uh, to get it back. But you want to, as counsel for the landlord, make sure that your client is insulated and protected to the best possible extent by having everything removed. Uh, ideally, your agreements for judgment, if you have them, will say something like, if anything is left in the apartment after the tenants return the key, then that is by agreement considered to be trash and the landlord may dispose of it however he or she sees proper. Then you're covered because they've already said by agreement that whatever is there is not important. Try to get that kind of a clause uh, in all of your agreements. Remember that when you are looking at these various issues after judgment, as well as any other issue prior to judgment. Always remember that there are special rules for the housing court. The uniform summary process rules contain a wealth of information that applies just to eviction cases. The housing court also has standing orders that are online that are unique to the housing court. Um, and if you ever get 
an execution and you don't use it right away, it's only good for 90 days and then it expires. However, uh, under um, Housing Court Standing Order 6-20, Section 3C, you can reapply to have that execution brought to life again and extended for another period of time. You don't want to go there if you can avoid it, but that possibility exists and it could mean the difference between getting a tenant out and having to start a case all over again. So pay particular attention in execution situations to uh, uniform summary process rules 10 and 13. And the main statutes to be aware of are chapter 239, sections three, five, and nine. If you follow those rules, you should be safe and it may be expensive, but at least you can get your tenant out uh, without having liability concerns. Thank you. All right, I think that's my slide. I am uh, attorney Dana Cohen. And, and first, um, am I the last speaker? Yeah, okay. So first, I just wanted to say that I, I am really impressed with the uh, expertise of this whole panel. I, I feel like in the in the cases that I've handled in my 38 years of practice, uh, I'm able to relate to many of the uh, issues that um, council has brought up in uh, on the panel. Um, the pandemic was a challenge for everyone. And I, I primarily represent landlords in addition to uh, the topic I'm going to talk about some of whom were owed over $30,000 and uh, they they really didn't care for the money. They just wanted to get the the uh, tenants out. And the, uh, the tenants just had a lot of power throughout this time period as they still do. And then as it relates to a topic that attorney Vining um, and attorney uh, and, and Kevin Walsh have brought up about the execution, I had brought a non-payment uh, case we got agreement for judgment. I requested the execution. We got the execution. It went to the sheriff. They they served it. Uh, they gave the 48-hour notice. And then the, the tenant ran into court and said, well, I, I paid the, the landlord uh, by check. So they got an emergency motion to stay the execution. Then the check bounced. So I had to bring an emergency motion uh, to reconsider and issue and let the execution move forward, which was approved. And then uh, a few days later, the tenant wired money or deposited money into my client's account. And uh, as it was brought up, <laughs> end of case. So even though the statute says you can, you can get judgment for possession and non-payment of rent, if, the, if your client, if the landlord accepts that payment, you don't get possession. You're, you're going back to court. So either bring in a uh, maybe a 30-day notice to quit, starting a new case. And so uh, that's just my personal experience. And some members on this panel, uh, I've spoken about that. And um, you think you get possession and, um, and non-payment, but if you accept the money, then that does end the case, as our panelists have talked about. 
anyway, so I'm here to talk about um, title ownership because if you bring a case for representing a landlord, you need to make sure that they are legally um, able to bring that case and that they own the property. So we can go to that next slide. And um, in Massachusetts, when we're looking at title, we have a complicated registry system. Everything's filed by counties and we have 22 counties in Massachusetts. And depending on where the property is located, will let us know what, what county that we're searching. And one county, Middlesex South District, happens to be the largest county in Massachusetts. And we research, uh, a lot of it's available online. You can go through what we call the grantor grantee index to determine who actually owns a, a property. And it's not a perfect system. Sometimes if the property is not showing is owned by the person that we think is supposed to own that property, uh, we can go to the assessor's uh, database, a lot of uh, which are online now, and you can determine who the current owner might be. So in Massachusetts, we have two recording systems. One is what we call registered land, and the other is unregistered land. So we have to make sure we know um, where the property is recorded. Registered land is really property that is certified by the land court in Boston. And it's just a system of registering deeds and mortgages and liens uh, going forward, going back over a hundred years. And my role uh, is to provide the information uh, to whoever asked for it as to actually who, who owns the property. And so we spend time online uh, to figure out who the current owner is. It's important because an individual can bring um, their own action for an eviction. However, if the property is owned in another form of ownership, like a corporation or an LLC or a trust, they uh, have to hire an attorney. The court, the housing court, any court won't let them move forward without uh, counsel taking on the case. And I've run into this in the past with some cases where uh, the entity, for example, may not be in good standing. And if you've brought a case on behalf of a corporation or an LLC and they're not in good standing, that case could get dismissed. Some people don't file their annual fees for the entity and they may get administratively dissolved. And I had a case uh, where I actually represented a defendant and uh, we got the case dismissed because the, uh, the person that, had, the plaintiff um, in an LLC, they, they, they were dissolved. So we got the case dismissed. Anyways, it's things that we look for. Um, Someone may also get a property through an estate or they think that they own a property in a trust, but when we research it, it's not in a trust. Or someone thinks that they own uh, the property, but they're not really the owner, they're the brother. And maybe they're collecting the rent, um, but they don't own the property. So it's important that the, the title does get researched to make sure that the uh, proper owner is on there. I actually got some requests today, today for several owners and we discovered that the ownership was different than what the uh, landlord plaintiff uh, was going to be. So my topic is uh, fairly simple. Uh, we researched the title, it's public record, anybody could do it. 
but if anyone needs uh, confirmation of a title or whatever, then um, happy to help out. And um, my presentation is not as long as some others because it's a simple topic, it's public record. Uh, we do it to help everyone to make sure that you don't get into court and find out that you're representing the wrong party. So thank you for having me on the panel. I appreciate it. And that's it. I don't have, I don't think I have another slide. Uh, Dana, thank you. I want to let everyone know that as a volunteer, Dana is also my brother and has been roped in to help as a pro bono lawyer for our volunteer lawyers project. And every single landlord that comes through our system has their property checked on a volunteer basis by Dana and by his law firm to make sure we don't end up in a situation like Dana described, where we've gone all the way through the system and then find out they have no jurisdiction to be bringing the case. So thank you, Dana. We, it's important to go through that. Um, I am cognizant of the time and we are uh, over time, but well worth spending the time, I think with all of these top lawyers in this business that are helping out with landlord and tenant law, especially in our program with our small landlords, you see our tagline, save our small landlords volunteer today in one minute. I want to give you some options of how you might volunteer because we are happy to help. We are happy to be able to be available and each panelist has offered to be available to anyone on this um, in this program. But we need your help and our small landlords need your help. And they have a tough time getting through this system and it's much more complicated than it ever was before the pandemic set in, not likely to get any easier. We have a brand new Lawyer for the Day program, which comes in three different uh, opportunities. We grab the dockets and I call them scraping. We go through every single docket in every single housing court and we're now moving into the uh, district courts to see who are the unrepresented landlords who have cases pending. And we reach out to them to let them know that there are educational resources available, there are lawyers available, and there are opportunities available for them with public funding for rent, for utilities, and for mortgage payments. The second part of that is our volunteers will actually make the calls to those low-income uh, unrepresented landlords to let them know. And as a result, we will then put them through a system if they're interested, which is virtual. And it's a 15 minute advice, you and a lawyer, them and a lawyer. And if it turns out that it's a case that we can help them with further, they are referred to our rental assistance program, which is our second program that's available for landlords for applying through RAFT or through HAF, which is a new program available to our low-income landlords for mortgage assistance, for utility payment assistance. And of course, the more popular and most noted one is rental assistance to be able to pay the balance of what is due to a landlord from a tenant. And the last is limited assistance representation. Perhaps you have a case pending in court or you have a client who has a case pending in court. We will do our best to find a lawyer who can represent pieces of your case to be able to assist you going through. We are a completely virtual program. 
So you do not need to come to our office. You do not need to go anywhere. If you have an ability to log on to a virtual Zoom room or a virtual um, VLP program, then we would love to have you at your convenience. Um, so our lawyers who are here today, their information is available. If we could go to the next slide while I say goodbye and thank you. This is who took the time today and we couldn't appreciate them anymore and you shouldn't appreciate them. You should appreciate them more than the time that they've given because they are our top lawyers. And I thank you and please help us help our small landlords. They need you, we need you, they need you more. And thank you Boston Bar Association for letting us go over and for making our presentation. Thank you. Hi everyone, thank you so much. And thank you again, thank you to our speakers, thank you to VLP and also all of our co-sponsors of this program. And additionally, thank you to our participants. We hope that you get involved and you have links, things of that nature, so you know where to go and who to contact regarding next steps if you'd like to get involved with VLP. And additionally, feel free to email me if you have any questions that you were not able to ask. I'm happy to forward those over to the speakers, but you also have the emails um, present on the screen currently. And with that being said, I'd like to wish everyone a great evening and have a great rest of your day. Thank you again, everyone. Thank you.